I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. You're listening to a special five-part series commissioned by Flag Art Foundation for their exhibition, The Times. The exhibition uses the New York Times as its point of departure and features over 80 artists, artist duos, and collectives who use the paper record to address and reframe issues that impact our everyday lives. I wanted to come at this from a completely different angle than producing an object for the space. As a sculptor, I felt like I needed to give something, but really, as an artist, I felt like I needed to create a starting place for you to come in and enrich the viewing experience for everybody involved. For me, that was talking to the people who actually work within the walls of the New York Times. So, in the next five interviews... I speak to editors and writers who work in different departments of the New York Times. We talk about why they do their jobs, how they do their jobs, and what it means to be a part of this institution that everybody knows about. The list of individuals that are included in this are Michael Owen, Rick Rojas, David Coleman, Andrea Canapel, and Randy Kennedy. I have to take the time also to thank all the people involved who helped me get these interviews because it wasn't easy. And thank the Flag Art Foundation for allowing me to contribute to this great exhibition. So without further ado, here we go. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is funny. We were scheduled to meet yesterday, and you got pulled on an assignment? Yes. Okay, and then we were scheduled to meet right after I had another meeting here at the Times with Andrea, and then you were gone again on an assignment. Yes. But this is sort of, I think this is sort of the nature of your job. Yes, I'm all over the place. All the time? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so what do you do here? So I'm a reporter on the Metro Desk. I just started a new beat maybe two or three months ago where I am a, uh, a regional correspondent. What does that for, mean? I cover New York, outside of New York City, New Jersey, and Connecticut. That's a lot of yeah. area. So I, I don't do a lot of like hard news stories. It's more like I kind of scan and find interesting, interesting things going on, things that I can kind of turn into features or might be able to dig into a little bit more. And it covers a whole range of things. You know, I, I wrote about the mayor of Bridgeport a couple weeks ago. I Bridgeport, just read that one. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I went up to the New York Canadian border a couple months ago. I The Times, they, they gave me a car. I have this uh, Chevy <laughs> Malibu and I basically just oh, like really? live in this thing because I'm just like driving all over so the you're, place. This is amazing. This is, <laughs> this is really interesting. Okay, so let's, I guess let's start at the beginning before we get into yeah. the job per se. You are not from New York City, right? No. Where are you from? I am from Beaumont, Texas, which is uh, in southeast Texas on the Gulf Coast by Louisiana. Yeah. Do you go to school down there or where? Yeah. I I went to Texas A&M for college. Did you you know you wanted to do journalism or what did you focus on? I I studied political science. I sort of ended up at A&M by accident. It doesn't really, it doesn't have a journalism program even though I knew I kind of wanted to be so a journalist. So you knew you wanted to do journalism. Yeah, it was just, yeah, so like my senior year was just like a really complicated year of high school. And I got into other schools, but, you know, a lot of people from my high school in Beaumont went to 
A and M, and I and it was an easy transition. Probably it was. You yeah. knew people. Yeah, so I could just I just did that. It probably wasn't the smartest choice, but it all kind of worked. Well, out. you're at the New York Times. I'd say it's probably fine <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So, so how did you transition out of Texas A and M? What happened next? So I did a lot of internships when I was in school. Actually, my like the the thing that really opened doors for me was I first worked for the school newspaper. Doing and uh, jack of all trades, or yeah, I wrote, I edited, I was the opinion editor, I was a page designer, I did it all. Right. Um, but is that my, how school newspapers work? Because they want to tr- teach you everything. Uh, more or less. I mean, it kind of depends on the. Per- I, I I sort of wanted to learn you all that different do it. stuff. Yeah. So that's how it worked out for me. But I think yeah, most people do all kinds of different things there. So in my freshman year, uh, Robert Gates was the president of A&M at the time, and George W. Bush appointed him as Secretary of Defense. Right. And so the Dallas Morning News called the student newspaper, and it was like their state editor saying, like, hey, find us your best, you know, give us your best senior reporter, like, you know, upperclassman who can write a story for us. Wow. And because A&M doesn't have a journalism program, and there was no one really there. So they were looking for anybody to do coverage on this. Basically, they, some, they ended up scraping the bottom of the barrel, and it was they me, needed like boots a on first, the ground. Yeah, it was a first semester freshman. Is that so, right? Yeah. Oh. And so <laughs> I ended up writing a story for them. They asked just at the very minimum, just get us quotes. But I wrote the story, and they put the story in the, the paper. full story. Yeah, and so I got to do some stringing for the Dallas Morning News for a while. What is stringing? Uh, that is a newspaper term where it's basically you're like a it's like a freelance. You go get quotes, or you can write stories, but it's basically you're the lowest man on the totem pole, and you just you're doing anything and stuff. everything. Whatever they tell you to do, you do it, and it's on a totally freelance basis. I was basically their point of contact at A and M, and if they had something on the ground in the region, yeah. So you if they needed the news, if there was something newsy happening, or you know, every once in a while, I could like pitch something to their education editor. So that was like my first thing, and then the New York Times actually has a program, and it's going on next door now. It's called the Student Journalism Institute. Next door in the building here. And in CUNY, it's it's hosted at CUNY this year. Oh, interesting. And it is a two-week journalism boot camp for graduate students and undergraduate students. And I did that when I was a sophomore. When I did it, it was in Tucson at the University of Arizona. Was it through the Times? Yeah. So they send the Times, and then the Times owned a lot of other papers too. So there were editors from the Times, from the Boston Globe, from like the regional papers that they owned. And you basically put out a newspaper and a website as a student. And that was, for me, like a very transformative thing because I had no idea how this business really worked at all. So what did it teach you? Like, what were the things that, what did you get out of it? I was introduced to like really high level professionals, which is something I had really no had access before. to, right? Yeah, none whatsoever. And in fact, my editor at the Institute is now my editor now. Oh, really? Yeah. And we By like, happenstance or? Yeah, we just like reunited for this new beat a couple months oh, ago. Oh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. But and also just in terms of, of career track, like I thought that, that the way to go is become the editor of my student paper and I, I just didn't know how the job market worked. And they, you know, the recruiter for the Boston Globe, this, this really awesome woman named Paula Bachnai, like sat me down and she said, I don't care about your student paper. You need to get internships. You need to be in newsrooms. You need to be writing stories at, at a professional papers, level. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, I kind of put a laser focus on that. Because you got to cut your teeth in yeah. a real place. Yeah, 
And so after that, I spent every summer in college. Getting the internships? Yeah. yeah. So where did you get internships at? So I went to uh, the Courier Journal in Louisville, Kentucky for a summer. And then I spent uh, the summers after my junior year and senior year at the Washington Post. Oh, in D.C.? Mm Mm-hmm. When you were in Louisville... You were there for the summer? Or Just the summer, yeah. Just the summer, and then the same with D.C. for the two following? hmm And then L.A., how did L.A. come about? So the L.A. Times has this program called MetPro, which is, it's taken a bunch of different forms over the year, but it started as a way for the Tribune Company, or Times Mirror, whatever the corporation was called then, to like try to bring in diverse talent. Um, what does diverse talent mean? Like, like people of color, people from okay. like not just white dudes sitting in a room in, talking to themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean newsrooms, and in particular, like major newsrooms, have a there's a history a, of a bunch of white men sitting around. Yeah, the room they can seem decisions. kind of homogeneous, you yeah. know. And so, just anyone that's sort of outside the norm. And so, the, it wasn't as strict when I got in. I mean, I'm I'm like part Latino, which is like what I, one thing I have going for me, I guess. But I uh, <laughs> if that's a thing. <laughs> uh, so I got into this program. It was like a six-month thing. I moved directly from D.C. Like, I had this... Like, Over the summer, you moved out of D.C. I had this, like, crazy, awful two-week span where I packed up everything in D.C., drove back to Texas. From D.C.? Yes. So oh, that's a haul. Yeah. And then got the rest of my stuff. From Texas and then from drove Texas, to Texas and then drove just, like, all my crap <laughs> in a Honda Accord and just drove to LA from there and I'd never been to LA before I started that job oh holy moly how long so how long were you in LA I was there for three and a half years it's a long time I mean I was in Southern California for three and a half years I I sort of moved around a lot so Southern California so you came to LA what was your job in LA so I was I was a quote-unquote met pro so like a reporter training they made they made you do this like class this is at the Los Angeles at the LA Times yes and so you were like a student for a while. They like made you meet all these editors and go to these workshops. They put me on, they moved you around for on these different rotations. Yeah. So I was on the education team for like six weeks. And then I was on the national desk for like six weeks. It's not very long on each one of them. No, no. And then I went to the culture department right. for like the rest of it. Yeah. And then after I finished, you know, at the six-month mark, they either, like, hire you or let you go. Basically, it's to see if you're going to work out or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I got hired as a, they made me, like, an education writer. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. So you were writing on the school district in L.A.? or what So I covered, my beat was a little, was not as institutionally defined as some of the other reporters, but I covered LAUSD real time of upheaval because, I don't know if you remember, but there was just like a huge budgetary crisis in California five years ago, and schools were just broke. You could go into these, they had like, I guess it was bonds to build all these new high schools, but you could go, you would go into them. And there would just be like nothing but empty classrooms and offices and really, you know, no support staff. Like there was just really desperate times. And so they've been able to resolve it since then. So but, that's really interesting. It must have been a really interesting. Oh, beat it was to fascinating cover because yeah. not just because of that, but it was also, you know, schools were all they're like a little Petri dish of society, like especially on in college campuses. Everything that goes on in the real world happens in like a microcosm there. You can write about politics and culture and religion and all these things are playing out on campuses and so it was nice to kind of use that as a platform to really write about anything. Was this something and I guess this is an overall question too for for writers at news organizations that may not have been the thing you wanted to 
specifically focus on. So the schools or, or yeah. education, you're thrown into something like that. All of a sudden that becomes your world. Yeah. So you become an expert on it in a, in a short period of time, probably. Does that all of a sudden become something you're interested in? Like the education and stuff. Is that all oh, of a sudden yeah. that's I mean, what I mean, you live and breathe? Yeah. I mean, I, I get bored very easily. But I'm also like like a very curious person. Like what I like about this job is I I I don't want to be a specialist. Like there's some people really in this business that God bless them because they're they're so invaluable. But they want to be they want to know everything about a subject. They want to know all the people. They want to spend right. their careers being the expert. Whether the minutia of yeah, these, yeah, it's like whether it's like politics or the FBI or whatever or mergers and acquisitions, whatever. Yeah. But that does not appeal to me at all. Like you I want get to bored. be. I like I like around. being a generalist. So you mm. like being in this car driving all across oh, the different definitely. states. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I love roaming around. I love where you get this call where they're like, "Hey, we need a story on this, or this happened, and we need a story." And I know nothing about it. Like when my editor tells me this is like the first thing I know about the subject, or and, and I just know nothing. So is that exciting? Oh, it's it's like huge. It's rush like a rush of huh? adrenaline and you know <laughs> anxiety. Like, and then at the end of the day. You know, it's, it may not be perfect. It may be like, and it's just like an 800-word story or something, but there's an 800-word story. And that it's like, you came up with in this short period of time. Yeah, and it's like, that's kind of a, a kind of a high from that. Just so like, is that what drives you? I What drives me is just being able to learn and to see things. I, I guess I should, should admit that like my motives for doing this are probably more selfish than some other people. Like, in what I, way? I know there's, there's a lot of people that want to work in this business because they... they Affect change and... Yeah, they think they can yeah. change the world and go after wrongdoers. And, you know, I'm like a working class kid from Beaumont, Texas. And I, you know, I got into journalism because I would watch the news on TV and I would see these people like, you know, talking to presidents and traveling the world and seeing things. The and access me, that you were granted through... It, yeah. it felt like a way to kind of, you know, I'm like a naturally... When I'm not in my role as a reporter, I'm a very kind of shy person. And when I get to go somewhere with my like pen and notepad, it gives me license to to go out and to see things and get in people's faces and, push, and ask questions yeah. and go into people's homes and just really get to see and learn and and oh, that's expand. Amazing. That's remarkable. Yeah, and so I, I, it's scary sometimes, but it's like it's just like so enriching to be able to do that. So you're in L.A. It was 2010 to 2014, right? Yes. Okay, so I wrote down what I had read. You covered manhunts, mass shootings, disasters, protests in California and beyond. That's a little intense. So this must have been after the education. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that happened in the education stuff, too. I mean, there was... So when I got to the L.A. Times, the paper had just done this huge accountability project where they basically graded every public school teacher in Los Angeles. They created this huge database. The Times did this? The LA Times, yeah, where yeah. it was, you could type in your, your kid's teacher's name. And find name, out how and they good were like or bad they rated. were. Rated, yeah. And that caused a huge uproar. So when I was arriving at the paper. It's very personal. Oh, definitely, yeah. And it, it the, you know, the, the union, the teachers union stage protests. Yeah. Going into the, these LA schools, as this like fresh-faced reporter, there was a lot of tension. You know, that obviously there were a lot of teachers that were not. Yeah. Boy, they really threw you in the thick of it, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> so, w- did you stay in education? How long you were there for so, a while? I mean, so. I've I've never. The one constant in my entire career is that I think jumped around constantly. inside. Of, so, what yeah. were the other? What were the other? So, I was were? I was an education reporter for like a year, and then I did a short stint doing digital focus breaking news and that was crazy because LA is just like a wild place and then I spent a year and a half as a reporter in the Orange County Bureau. Did you move? I did. I started off commuting and yeah that drive is insane. It's awful. I like I in fact when I was there I wrote a column about the 405 and I was just like (laughs) killing me. was it an opinion piece or a fact? <laughs> no, it was, it was an opinion piece. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, throughout the whole time I was there, I was a friend of the National Desk. Which what was, is that? There, so the National Desk has, you know, here and there, it had, like, a system of bureaus across the country staffed yeah. with correspondence. Right. By the time I was there, the LA Times was drastically reduced in its Yeah, they had cutbacks big time. And so the bureaus weren't as staffed, but there was a lot more need for like the the web and whatever. So anytime there was like some huge thing blowing up, I was either pulled in to help cover. I was either like sent there. So like I went to go like when there was the in town of West Texas, when there was a huge factory explosion. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, they killed like 14 people. I went there for that. Really? When there was all those firefighters that were killed in Arizona, I went there for that. So on something like that, where you're sent to a site, like that explosion happens. How quickly after that takes place are you on a plane or what? The first flight I can find out. You know, it's a matter of like, hopefully I have enough time. Usually I'd have enough time to like go home. I would like rush home, pack a bag, and then just like head Grab to the Grab like airport. a change of clothes and then go to the airport. Yeah. And then you're on the ground. You hope to find a hotel. Maybe you're sleeping in the car that you rent. What, yeah, yeah. It's, it's whatever it's works. Just book a flight, reserve a car, and then you just start And you driving. don't even know how long you're going to be You don't know how long you're going to be there. I mean, I've sometimes it's like a day. Sometimes it's, you know, when I went to Arizona for the wildfire, I think I was there for like maybe three weeks. Oh, my gosh. So Without knowing that Without having any clue. So it's like you have to, it's a job that really at least in the way I like doing it, demands being really flexible. But I have to assume that that is needed at every institutional media source like the New York Times. Oh, yeah. There's got to be people like you who are willing to do that, or the LA Times, because if they don't have that, they don't have coverage. So does that usually fall to the younger people? No, who no. Come in? It's like anybody and everybody. No, I, I would is... say there's a certain type of person. I, I call them like newspaper people, but they're not. It's, it has nothing to do with yeah. the print product. It's, it's just like a mindset where you want to be a part of the of thing a story. that's happening. And it's and, and it could be you're in the you know at the front lines of a fire, or you're at the desk, you know, a phone to your ear, taking transcribing right. feeds from a reporter in the field. It's not necessarily about. The glory or whatever it's just like you, are you feel like a thing being a part of yeah. the story you know because really when you see a newsroom like mobilize like that it, it's kind of a beautiful thing well i would imagine it's exciting to be a part of, a, of that machine yeah i mean because it, it is a machine and you know it was and because it was smaller at the la times it was it, it was more pronounced in a way because you know if if you know if there was a mass shooting you know, the, the national staff didn't have... It's all hands on deck. Yeah, they couldn't do it all themselves. They would bring right. in editors from Metro. They would send out reporters from Metro or, you know, if the business section had someone close by, it was just like everyone got pulled in. 
Here, what's inc so incredible about this place is, at the New York Times, is because it's so big, like these huge events happen and it doesn't feel like there's any seismic ripple. It just continues. The place is just like built to handle these things. And you know that the foreign desk is gonna be a little bit busier today because there was something. You never come in and the whole place just You're wondering how something electric. else is gonna be yeah. covered if that doesn't take place. Yeah. So you're in LA. Mm -hmm. Do you get down at the Times? How do you end up the LA Times? Did you come directly to the New York Times? Yeah, so my last job at the LA Times was I was the Inland Empire Bureau Chief, which was... I'm going to tell you this too. When I moved to LA, I had no clue what the goddamn Inland Empire was. Me neither. It sounded cool as hell, but I didn't know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like straight out of a movie. Little did I know the Inland Empire is actually just a desert and as hot as all get out. And it's huge. It's like the size of nine states put together, basically. And it's two counties. So is I, it really? Yeah. See, it's, I didn't even know that. It's just endless. And it's also endlessly maligned by people in Los Angeles because... As I just did. No, I mean, it's not, <laughs> but the thing is, it's not... You're not entirely wrong because well, it is it is a place where... It, it, for those listening, it is east of L.A. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's essentially east-east of L.A. Yeah, so that's like San Bernardino County and Riverside County. So you covered that. Yeah, so I moved to Riverside, which is actually a pretty nice, and yeah, pretty beautiful city. Yeah, that's great. It's crazy. Like it, there. In my, what way? My predecessor in that job told me it's every story always ends up in in the Inland Empire because it's just a desert Florida for California. You know, it's just <laughs> filled with very colorful people. I, I mean, I can tell you all the the kind of mean things people have told me about it. You know, one of my editors told me that uh, it was the place where where people who had dreams in LA, that's where their dreams died. Yeah, where they the went Inland to Empire. go die. <laughs> you know, it, it's there's a lot of drugs and- It's cheap to live because crime. it's so far out. Yeah, and it's right. there's just a lot of poverty and a lot of grim stuff. I can't tell you how many like pit bull attacks I covered. Really? And, yeah, it's a, it's a wild place, you know, but it's, it was really, I mean, it was pretty interesting, but I was kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason, I felt like when I was in that job, like I just kind of wanted to look for something different. I, I have like deep affection for the LA Times. Like I love, it's Do like you? a place that has a lot of... Because it was your first real job outside of... Well, that, and the, I mean, obviously I learned so much from the people there, but it just has this rich tradition of storytelling. Yeah. And that's what I care about, is being able to pour as much color and texture into a story as you possibly really can. Really paint a picture. You know, yeah, it's not about just the who, what, when, where, why, or it's not all about, necessarily about being all analytical, it's just, this is an interesting thing, tell me about it. Right. And obviously they do all the other stuff too, but there was also an appreciation for that. Like they had a thing on the front page called the column one, and it was like you could write these long features that were like about the most random things, but you could just write till your heart's content, and they were well edited, and. And so I, I got to write a lot of those, but I saw that all the people that I really looked up to there, these, these correspondents who had been around, around the world and came back and edited these great stories, I worried that I couldn't have the careers that they had. If you, you stayed know, at the Times. If I, if I at stayed the at the LA Times. Times. You know, it, there was just this sense of, there was just a very kind of grim outlook. It felt like it was just going to get smaller and smaller. We're going to burn and out was, there. And... 
if you, I feel like if you want, if I wanted to be a Metro reporter, if I wanted to be like the best city hall reporter in the world, or if I wanted to cover LA Unified, you could do it. You could do it, and you could have an exceptional career and really make an, you know, really make an impact. But as someone who likes roaming around and who wants to like bounce around bureaus and for a young. career, yeah, and it just, I, it, it, it didn't seem like that was as much. There wasn't as much of a chance for that. I was looking at the New York Times's jobs page one night, and I saw this random posting for something called "Reporter Need to Know." <laughs> You're like, what? What is that? Yeah, and so I recognized. I remembered. I like reading all the kind of like inside media stories, and I remember there was something in like the New York Observer or something with an internal announcement from here, talking about starting some vaguely described thing for digital called need to know uh-huh. and that cliff levy who was then like a deputy metro editor was going to run it and I, it was his email address on the posting so i just sent him an email like explaining i don't really know what this is but i want to be a part of it also like i want to be a times person right i revere this institution and i so, so was, you got a response i got a response <laughs> um we a couple days later we had like a skype interview and then it went quiet for a while. They brought me out here for an interview in January of the like the following January. Right. So it was several months later. And so you thought that ship had maybe sailed. I thought so. And <laughs> even when I came here for my interview, like it was I mean it was cool, but it was like I also had an interview for another job at another news organization before then and it was like super intense it was the other one or this one the other one it was seven hours long and oh my gosh yeah and they like made me bounce around and talk to all these different people did they have you editing stuff too no 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 it was just like like i'd go to a lunch with this person and meet with that person wow it was grueling and some of them were very antagonistic like it was just like it felt very intense and then I came here, and the interview, I was expecting something similar to that. And I did talk to a lot of different people, Yeah. but it was very conversational. It's just, you know, tell me who you are, what do you like to do, what could you do here? Are we going to want to work with you, like, yeah. one-on-one yeah. on a personal it was, basis? It was, it was very perfect, <laughs> right? but it felt, like, too casual. Like, I came away with it thinking, you know, and someone even suggested that to this me to this, like, you know, we like you, but maybe this isn't for you. And so I thought that that They said that while you were here? Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. That's one of the what like one of the recruiting editors told like, me, and uh, so I was I kind of left with the impression like this was like a meet and greet, you know? Maybe yeah. they liked me, maybe would get to come here in the future, but but it isn't going to happen. It, so. I don't know. And then the interview was on a Friday, and then Monday night, like super late, really late New York time, because it was like maybe eight o'clock in L.A. Oh wow. Cliff called me and was like, hey, do you want to come work for the New York Times? And I was, holy shit. I mean, I was like, nearly <laughs> died, you know? I was like in my car and I just had to like pull over and sit for a minute. It, that became... How long ago was this? This was in, it was, I guess, three years ago. It was January right. of, of 2014 when all this went down. Right. And so um, I had to rush here because the, the thing that was called Need to Know evolved into NYT Now, right. which was an iPhone app. Is this how you know Michael? Michael yes, Owen? Yes. So Michael, yes. who I interviewed for the podcast as well, was one of the, the people on. Yes. NYT so that's now. how I, yeah, that's how I know Michael Owen. 
it, it was like kind of like a laboratory for trying new things on mobile. Like it was a way to bring in younger readers. Like it was just, you know, a complete 180 from what I had been doing. Like it was just like all. But exciting. Yeah, right? it was just, like, yeah. I mean, it was thrilling because it's, and that was it was really, very future oriented. And it was a is, test to figure out how the media gets to the people and what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. And yeah. what Michael was saying in the, the interview that I did with him is that that eventually shut down because it didn't do exactly what they wanted, but the lessons that they took out of that NYT now transformed this place. Did it really? It did. Because when I, I mean, when I started, all the stuff that we were doing on NYT now was, you know, it was like kept at arm's length. We were sort of kept in a, you know, the institution invested a lot into getting it off the ground, but... You know, there was also a sense of like, we're going to do this, but we're going to do it at a distance. Right. You know, we were doing things that were starting, you were really pushing in a conversational tone and writing. With the audience. Yeah. And trying to just be like approachable and not be like this huge, you know, be like this huge institution on the mountaintop, you know, sort of taking all of our expertise and, and uh, network of reporters around the world and like trying to make it seem a little bit more approachable. Now... It's like that is that is the New York Times now. Right. You can see the the portal on the homepage with stories from you know inside and outside of the Times that are yeah. that are linked there. The conversations the, 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 with the people in the Times. Yeah, the 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 the, the tone that some stories have, the fact that you can write in a more casual way, that it's what is the best way that we can get readers to be interested in this story, not necessarily like, oh well we've done this for like a hundred years, we're gonna keep doing it. Right. That was, I mean, that was like a huge, well, just a huge learning experience. Well, especially being inside of it and then hopping back out. So that ends, right? Yeah. Well, I I left well before NYT now closed. Why why is that? Because I... Were you reassigned to something else or how does that work? Yes. I mean, it was always sort of accepted that when I came here, it, it would be, it would just be a temporary thing. It'd be like a way in the door and I would do it for maybe like a year or two. And so I did it for almost a year. Right. And then the Phoenix bureau chief took a leave of absence. This to, is great. This is what I wanted to talk yeah. about. So she took a leave of absence to write a book and they needed someone to go to Phoenix. And so they came to me and... That's incredible. I was just like... After a year, you already sent yeah. to Phoenix to... To support the Phoenix I mean, chief. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, I was like, hell yes, of course I'll do it. But I mean, I, I think it was probably another, yet another one of those like scraping the bottom of the barrel things. But it's like, I'm, Everybody's I'm, like, I'm not moving to I'm, Phoenix. I'm totally fine with that. You know, I, uh, that worked for me. So I, um. What an amazing opportunity. Oh, it, it, I. The state, so you, Phoenix bureau chief covers like the south. Yeah, yeah. It, right? it's, it's not just. I would go in, I mean, my main turf there, and her name is Fernanda Santos, and she still has that job. The main turf is Arizona, New Mexico. I went to Nevada. I went to California. I did something in, like, the panhandle of Texas. So what is the staff on site there? Oh, there's, I mean, there's, it's like. Is it you? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So just to give you a sense of of just how unglamorous this this job (laughs) is. There wasn't really a sense of how long I would be there. I mean, I was really untested. And I think, you know, it totally makes sense. My editors in National were not sure what they were getting. Yeah. Uh, so they said, like, let's start with six weeks. See and if it then works. we'll kind of go from there. I was there for six weeks. No one told me to come home. <laughs> so I just like, 
I stayed there and I lived out of hotels for like six months. Is that I, right? I had I had Fernanda's like company issued car. You were like so. And I was like living out of extended stay uh, hotels yeah. for forever. And in fact, there was this one awful span in the middle. So the so the Super Bowl was there in I guess January or February, and then there's baseball spring spring training that was right. there. And it was impossible to find places where I could. Stay. So there was like a two week oh. span where I had I had to change my hotel like every single day. Terrible. It was it was it was kind of crazy. Well, still trying to do your job. Yeah, it was crazy. And all, another thing I noticed spending in all these staying in all these extended stay hotels was they're very <laughs> sad places. You know, it's they're like it's, sad. it's like divorcees and like traveling salesmen and they're not cheap to stay at either not really no and so the every like every evening you walk the hall at like six o'clock and there's like always this overwhelming smell of garlic bread because there's all these people that are like thawing out the tex <laughs> frozen texas toast individually in their rooms i probably smell that now and just get like sad so uh what it's like the cinnamon cinnamon buns in the mall <laughs> sad smell is garlic bread so you're there you're covering I, multiple states driving all the time i assume driving flying yeah it, that was so much fun i mean i would if they send me back there again and said you have to live in a i would totally you would do it, it in a heart like in a heartbeat like it was so great you were a certain type of person man uh, yeah, that is. <laughs> that's yeah, cool. Like, there wasn't a lot, of, like, not a lot of breaking stuff going on. There wasn't on. like breaking stuff, and there's like the things that were newsy to like the papers there, just weren't quite. They were going to cut it for the New York Times, but they, they need didn't some... want another story about Joe Arpaio or something. Exactly. What I got to do is, I, I got paired up with a brilliant editor who I here think in the New York. Of, yes, come from like kind of a features What's background. Her name? her name is Jennifer Kingston. And she's uh, she works in the business section now, but she had been, she was like the West Coast editor uh, here in New York. And But she came from like the science section and styles and had like this, just this real love that I share of just like quirky, colorful stories. And yeah. we found that like the Southwest is just full of that. And so, since there wasn't much news, I was just following these cool, crazy, random. You know, like my first front page story in the paper was about a on the New York Times. In the New York Times was about a nuclear missile silo that was for sale in Roswell, New Mexico. Okay. So I w made my way to Roswell, New Mexico, and I got the real estate agent to take me on a tour with like some of his of buddies. Yeah, and so we just like went. It's like ten stories beneath the ground, and you're just like walking around in this. That is like, cool dank space it's like it's in the middle of nowhere but it's like covered in so are you doing and... are you taking the photos and stuff no 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 they send the thank god they send the photographer i so once a story like what's a story like that is locked down and you know that you're going to write it they'll mm -hmm. send a photographer out there to take the photos yes. yeah got you and they, they, the photographer, photographer came with me I, I found a cactus surgeon in phoenix <laughs> and so i went around with him so what sections of the paper were these in oh it was all in the national section that is so cool yeah so you come back out of there, the sabbatical is over for the person who's writing the book. Yes. And you're back in New York. I come back to New York and I go directly to One Police Plaza. I saw this as well. Yeah. Like, what the heck is this? <laughs> they, have, they have somebody assigned to One Police Plaza? They had, when I was there, they had three people assigned to what One Police What is that about? Is so that... It's, it, it's crazy. Like, you go to police headquarters on the, it's called The Shack 
on the second floor of one PP. You have like a room or something? There is there's a hallway of these little basically they look like janitor's closets. They're probably about the size of this room we're in now. Just yeah, like maybe very, this is ten by ten. You can fit like they would cram like three desks into something like this. Holy moly. And every news organization had one. So they uh, the the post then there was like Newsday and the Wall Street Journal shared one, and I think El Diario was in there too. And then there was the Times Room. The the, the Daily News had theirs at the end of the hall, and so it, it was. I mean, it was certainly a huge was that intense? transition. Was it? It was intense. I mean, the hours were crazy, and it was very taxing in a in a in a strange way. Like it was because there's probably not a lot of good news coming out of there. Oh no, no. I mean, I went from like writing about. A cactus, cactus surgeons <laughs> and and do you remember the the llamas that escaped and ran around yeah, the yeah. retirement? I like did a profile of the llamas, <laughs> and so I went from like doing that to just like mass murders and police briefings and all of that. That's and a, so that's really stressful. it was it was yeah it was it was stressful and you're just like in this little room all the time and I mean I mean it was certainly a huge learning experience because I hadn't I'd always written police stories. It's not like the first time I've written a crime story, right. but it was the first time I had to do it from like within the institution. Yeah. And so I learned a lot from that. It was a very bureaucratic place. You kind of have to just like learn the bureaucracy. The rules. And the rule. And it's just, you know, you would. So you, the reason you were in the building is you could call DCPI, which is the Deputy Commissioner for Public Information, which is like the public information arm of the New York Police Department. You can call them, but also the reason you're in the building is anytime there's a public appearance by a police official, you could go to that and ask them questions afterwards, or you could go physically go to DCPI. And get briefed And what that entailed is you would take the elevator up to the 13th floor, and you would walk up to a counter, and they had like a, a, like a detective or a sergeant or, or lieutenant of DCPI like on duty in the hot seat, and you would just like ask them questions. I bet they love that. Yeah, and so it was. It was like, yeah. I mean, it, it's just it's a very weird setup, but that's kind of how things have been. Incredibly interesting. I, yeah. People don't know how this stuff works. So, how long were you doing the police beat? The so that's the thing. Like, I moved around a lot. So I did that maybe nine months. Long enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get back to that. But I, so I, I, I uh, we did that for for nine months, and then I in like in January of. 2016, I became like a daytime rewrite person, which is where what you, is that? there's like, I sat right over there. Where you're pointing across, across yes, the courtyard. Just yeah. like there's like a desk in the newsroom and you like get there and your, your job is to catch any breaking, like anything that happens, you're the one that like anchors these stories. During the day, but you said rewrite. Rewrite. So that means either, it's like a... There's like a language to these to uh-huh. the, the newspapers. You're like a general assignment reporter. So like anything that happens, it's not somebody's beat but needs to be covered or like the beat reporter's busy. Right. You're just like a catch-all. Right. But then like the old school rewrite is you're the one that if there is a big story, the main reason you're there is if there's like a big story that happens, you have to be the one that, you know, let's say a police officer gets shot or there's some big story like that. Yeah. You know, you see the machinery of the place at work where there's, you know, a dozen reporters deployed. They're going to, to, to street corners and hospitals and they're tracking down family members. And when you're the rewrite person, you're the one that's kind of sitting in the middle of it that has to take all the stuff that all these people bring and actually have to sew it into a story. Make sense of it. Yeah. You know, when there's, so I worked kind of an off shift where I came in at 11 
And then I stayed till I was supposed to leave at like seven, but I never left at seven. Of course. Especially for like print, like if something big happened, I would be writing stories like over and over for like tradition of the paper and just like constantly updating. I would write, you know, by the end of the night, I would have written a story, either rewritten it or put in significant updates five or six times. That's amazing. In the process, gotten dozens of emails from reporters with quotes and, you know, descriptions of what's happening and information and press conferences and it's just sewing all that together it's a, it's a lot and it's very intense but i really that part of it i really liked yeah so it brings us we're almost done uh-huh. but i wanted to talk a little bit about what you do now yeah so what you do now is a your metro mm-hmm. and you're traveling all over the place yeah, and so I, I sort of view my job as like Metro's national correspondent. So Metro in to the New York Times is basically New York State, I mean, New, uh, New Jersey and Connecticut. Right. I get to find stories, basically anything that me and my editor can settle on is like, this is something we need to, to cover, I go cover it. You're doing sort of the more important versions of stuff that you were doing when you were out in... I mean, I wouldn't say important because I've done some pretty frivolous stuff. But, <laughs> um, I mean, I did, I did important stuff too when I was in Arizona. It's just the stuff that I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but also beyond that though is, and we're, I think we're still figuring it out, but like I'm the person that Metro can deploy when things happen out of state. So like there was this awful case I guess maybe a month or two ago where a man was guy from Baltimore came to New York with the intent to kill black men. Yeah, I remember this. And he chose New York because it was like a media capital and he thought he could get yeah, more coverage. attention. Yeah. And so he brutally attacked this guy, uh, Timothy Kaufman, I believe. After that happened, I was it was, hey, we need you to go to Baltimore. So I just drove to Baltimore and You're researching that guy? Yeah, to find out what I could about him, and then I ended up doing a story just about his neighborhood in Baltimore. It sounds exciting and challenging. I just think about you telling these stories. I think about how you have to get into the middle of these communities and sort of get people to talk to you and want to talk to you. So you've got to be humble sometimes and aggressive other times and mm-hmm. to know how to read somebody to get into that situation. It's just, it's really sort of crazy. You know, I think some people have this sense of journalism watching press conferences where you see the reporters just like hammering away right. at a spokesperson or you saw like the, 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 you know, the famous like Mike Wallace interviews on 60 Minutes right. where he's just going really hard at people and reporting is, yeah, there's some of that that happens, but it also, it, it's a very nuanced, tricky thing where, you know, sometimes talking to reporters is not in their best interest, but you have to like convince them to talk. There's like a greater good that comes from yeah. telling these stories or that you're helping to inform people and it's tricky it's like there's like a lot of convincing and a lot of making people feel comfortable because like for me i don't i talk to official people a lot for my job but more than that i talk to people that, that aren't media savvy that aren't hounded by reporters right. every day who've never been talking you know who've never interacted with a reporter in their life and then the moment they're dealing with it it is usually about or often about one of the worst moments in their life. Right. And so, like, I've always come, I, I try to be respectful of that. You know, I try to think, like, you know, if God forbid, if I were in this position, how would I want to be approached? You know, after violence or when people die, for right. instance, you yeah. know, you're, 
it can feel a little gross, you know, calling victims family members yeah. and but there are moments when you do talk to them and you have conversations with them that you realize that it can be a cathartic experience they want for to them talk. too. Like yeah. you if this awful moment is the only time your loved one's name is gonna be put in the New York Times, you don't want them to be this like two dimensional person who's like only known for this awful right moment. You want them to be a you want to tell their story. full person. Like someone yeah. Who is you know complicated, but you know whatever. So you want to get that. So I think sometimes it's just some you know trying to convey that to people. So I reason. I assume you're going to um, jump around inside of the Times fairly soon again to a new job. <laughs> 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 you never you, know. You, yeah, you never know. I mean, you may know something but it, I don't. But, but no, I don't know anything. But it sounds like you you really enjoy what you're doing right now. So I do, yeah. I, I've, you know, I was just thinking about that the other day. I was, I was asking my editor for something, and I was driving back from an assignment in Long Island. I was like, I'll be honest. As much as I learned, and as much as I benefited from the police reporting experience, like it was a very fish out of water thing yeah. for me. It wasn't. With hindsight, I'm really glad I did it, but it wasn't like a natural fit. And yeah. so to be like driving back from an assignment in Long Island and talking to my editor, I was just, wow, I'm really content. And I was, it was nice. That's so, a good thing. Yeah. Rick, thank you for taking the time. To yeah, thank you so much for having it's me. It's nice this that we finally got into the same yeah. room. <laughs> <laughs>